Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're all about death. With Brandy Skilarchi's Death's Summer Coat, and then Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, Another Lesson from the Crematorium by Caitlin Doty. Dr. Brandy Skilarchi writes about culture, the history of medicine, and the intersections of medicine and literature. She is research associate and guest curator for the Dittrich Medical History Centre and managing editor of the International Medical Anthropology Journal, Culture, Medicine and Psychiatry. She teaches for the SAGES Department at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland and has lectured at the Centre for History of Science, Technology and Medicine at the University of Manchester, the University College of Dublin and the New York Academy of Medicine. And Brandy's first book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Death's Summer Coat, What the History of Death and Dying Can Tell Us About Life and Living. So, Brandy, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. I want to talk about, I guess, the the why write this book question. So let's sort of cover that let's talk about the relationship we have with death i guess in the west at this particular point in history sure sure so one of the things that i find really interesting is that we often can't get outside of our own heads to see what we're about and so because i work for an anthropology journal it helps me because i i'm always looking at other cultures and that's a really good way of going oh we do strange things you know so i think that we're often really unaware of where we actually happen to be at any given moment because you can't see outside your own head. A few years ago, I went to the first death salon here in the United States and uh, Megan Rosenblum and Caitlin Doughty are also people who organize that. And one of the things that we discovered in conversation was just how unusual the approach to death in the West is in comparison to other places in the sense that we don't really engage with it fully. It's much more of a, I mean, you're sort of expected to go to the funeral and then get back to your life and get back to normal and get back to work. Funerals themselves are usually handled by other people. Most most uh, burials go through funeral homes. And so death means, you know, someone has died, then they go off to the mortician and you might not see the body again until uh, if you're in the United States, we do a lot of viewings, but you might not see the body again at all. In Britain, there's often closed caskets and then it's, you go to the, it's lowered into the ground and then that's it. And you're sort of expected, I think, to just 
put that aside and move on. And that's not the way other people do it. And it's not even the way we used to do it. So I'm a historian and I look at the past and I think, wow, it's really radically different than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And I just, uh, I thought it was time probably to write a little bit of a comparative history to say, how did we actually arrive at this point? And is this place a healthy place to be? Or is there something we could be doing better? And this place we're at now, where we're we're insulated from death through those rituals that you've just described, but also just the fact that, you know, we don't have the terrible infant mortality we once have had. People live a lot longer. Medicine is obviously a lot better. And of course... That is not the case in many other places around the world. And interestingly, you, t- you mentioned this this idea of the death salon, and and you talk in the book about somebody, you know, somebody criticizing one of those somewhere online, saying, you know, this is just a, a thing for cool disaffected hipsters to go and hang around and talk at because they're you know they're insulated from this idea that you might just see a dead body in the gutter or something nowadays. Mm, yeah, and you you do get a lot of. I think that there's a big pushback against movements that are. I, I've heard it called the death positive movement in uh, some literatures, but there, there is pushback because I think there's a sense in which people think you're uh, if you're if you're treating death like that somehow you're not being somber enough or you're not being serious or uh, having a whole you know conference about it is somehow that's not the way you're supposed to do it. And you get a lot of that. That kind of well, you're not doing it the way we always do it. But that's partly because people are unaware of history. Like the way we've always done it has changed radically over time. So uh, we did get a little, there was some some commentary in the newspapers and things after the event. And there were some somewhat negative things that people had to say. And I think that's fascinating because I think that's part of the, the interesting cultural idea. That's part of the cultural relevance, right? Why do we need a book like this? Partly because there's so much hostility against talking openly about death outside of the understood avenues where that's supposed to go. So I think that's really interesting. I also think it's interesting that you have so many young people interested. <laughs> so what, why are so many young people interested instead of, I don't know, I guess people assume that if you're young and healthy, you shouldn't be interested in death and dying. But I think that's really um, that's making some assumptions about people's lives and experiences. You said they're death and dying, and you talk in the book about how those you know, they're two separate things. Death is a, both an event and a process that has to be gone through, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that we usually think of death as being an event normally. I think usually we're told you're alive, you're alive, and then you're dead. But in fact, dying and death are not exactly the same thing. So I gave an inst- a lot of times I use aspects of my own life to talk about death and dying because I feel like you can't always generalize. But in my life, for instance, my grandfather found out that he was dying of cancer and it the death process was about 11 months before he actually died. And through all of that time, we were really aware of the fact that he was going to die. So it was a lot of preparation that went in, you know, he was sort of sewing up loose ends. And my grandmother, by contrast, died suddenly overnight after getting a clean bill of health from her doctor's At one point, I actually suggested we not pay the doctor because I felt like we'd been lied to. But she died suddenly, and then all of the preparation happened afterwards. And I realized that it's always activity, whether, you know, whether the death, whether you know someone's going to die and you're preparing for their dying, or whether they've died already and then you're preparing for your grief, this process and event, they both happen at the same time. And so you're really doing two things. You're thinking about death as like this moment when that person is no longer here, but you're dealing with that death both before and after they die. So it is definitely a process. And in both of those descriptions of your grandparents' deaths, there are different, I guess, different looks at what we would now consider to be a good death. 
And well, that in itself seems like a contradiction in terms. Can there ever really be a good death? So let's let's talk about how that definition has changed over the years as well. Sure. Well, you know, I think it, it has changed a lot. So originally, good death was something that meant you had prepared properly for death. And I mean, I'm talking quite a long time ago. You had your lands were in order, and the proper people were going to inherit, and you had prepared your soul properly and you were basically going to ensure that your family was okay and that people were going to be destitute and your soul was proper and people watched the dying to see for evidence of where you might be going like they thought that if you were going to heaven you would die a certain way and if you weren't going to heaven you would die a certain way so there was all of this ritualized watchfulness over the dying process and so there was a lot of pressure on you to die well and that might mean being stoic, that might mean being very religious or spiritual about it, but it meant different things. But then the good death, I think these days we tend to think of a good death as like quick and painless death, even maybe sudden so that, it, you know, oh, they didn't suffer. But that would have been considered a terrible thing earlier on because you wouldn't have had time to arrange your affairs. So it's kind of interesting how what happens after you die was both the spiritual things that happen to this person who dies afterwards and what happens to their lands and property afterwards were so important in an earlier point in history that you really wanted to know well in advance that you were going to die so you could prepare all these things. And that's, say, very different from, say, the hunter-gatherers who might be <laughs> immediately suddenly killed by a saber-tooth something. So, you know, that that changed. But now I feel like we're back to this idea. Usually, and I was starting to see this in the Victorian era with uh, advances in medicine, you wanted to stop suffering. And so now I think when people say, oh, that was a good, yeah, I don't think people say good death. But when, when they're talking about it, it's like, oh, it was quick and painless and he didn't suffer. And so it was really not so bad. People like Caitlin, Caitlin Doty, who wrote Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, she's actually kind of I think trying to sort of reclaiming this idea of the good death and she runs the order of the good death and can say more about that. But I'm, uh, I think it's partly about reinterpreting and, and taking back some of our history. Yeah. Cause there's an idea that you could have a comfortable and painless death in a hospital, you know, in a hospital room with wires in you and everything. But in fact, there's, there's sort of a backlash against that now as well, isn't there in that people would much prefer to die in their own home surrounded by their relatives. Right. Which is how we used to, that's basically how everybody used to go, you know, and I think hospitals are really uncomfortable places to be if you've ever spent much time in one. And a friend of mine has a, their mother has dementia and uh, she got ill and went into the hospital and she immediately began to deteriorate. And once they stabilized her and brought her back home, she got better after she got home. And I think, you know, hospitals are strange alien places to be and it's out of routine and there's a lot of people you don't know and frequently it's you're surrounded by other people who are ill and so you know it's a very disruptive kind of place to be and it's even though hospitals are fantastic and of course I study the history of medicine and I, I they're so much better than they used to be I still think it's an uncomfortable place to be and nobody wants that to be their last you know the, the last image they have usually most people say oh I'd like to die in my bed although I guess ultimately the person that's dying once they're dead they don't really care. I mean, this idea of the good death as well is also about the process of dying for those that are left behind, isn't it? Yes, and it got more that way over time because in earlier Western culture and still in many other cultures, there was an idea that a process happened after you died that your soul had to go on various journeys, both in the Christian context and in the pagan context, that there was a lot of journeys that took place after death. And that was very important. And people prayed for the dead and uh, thought that the dead could still influence their lives. But as we've moved forward in time, not to say that the world has suddenly become secular because there's still many different religions and many different practicing people. But I do think that uh, we're far less 
ritualized in the West. We still practice rituals, but they're not, sometimes they're a little bit divorced from the original uh, religious context. But you, as we've moved forward in time and you've got a lot more emphasis on science and ration and enlightenment and uh, medicine and things like that, it's much less about what happens to you after you die. It's much more about what happens to your children or your parents or your friends, your loved ones, what happens to your property, your posterity. And I think that that's the kind of immortality that most that, that gets focused on a lot in the West, as opposed to the kind of immortality that used to be very important uh, in our culture and others that had to do with your actual soul going somewhere else. So I think I, I try very hard in the book not to say now we're secular and then we weren't, because I think that's oversimplifying things. But there has been a, a shift in that direction. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. Well, one of the ways in which that idea has shifted, I think, is, again, to do with medicine. And the idea that there obviously came a point in medical history, we can talk about when that was, where, and I guess this isn't really what the doctors think, it's just this vague idea that's current in in the sort of general population. Modern medicine can cure death itself, like we shouldn't be dying any longer, and the idea that somebody does die is somehow a shock, it's somehow an offence. Yeah, well, I feel like we all expected, you know, we got the Star Trek communicators now, we have iPhones, and why don't we have the Star Trek pills that grow you a new liver, you know? I think that we do have a sense in which people thought we'd be further along in medicine, and I've heard, and I've seen it actually in various newspaper articles and magazine articles and pop culture, this idea that somehow we ought to be able to use nanobots or something to fix our bodies and endlessly replace parts and there shouldn't be death anymore, but... I think that that's still a fairly fantastical idea. Most people have recognized that there's going to be death, but they kind of, we have this funny way of, of uh, keeping two ideas in our head at the same time. And I talk about that a little bit in the book that um, on one hand, yes, I know everybody dies, everybody dies, but we live in this culture of immortality and this idea that the hospital and the doctor can always fix you. And actually that's a great burden on doctors. I interviewed several of them for the book. One of them is a neurologist who deals a lot with brain death. And uh, he talks about the fact that that's, it's a terrible burden to be asked to be a priest as well as a doctor for people and to enact a kind of miraculous healing when medical science can only do so much. And so I think it can be really a, a little bit of a burden, this misunderstanding of exactly what's available. And also in, in the media as well, because that's, you know, the, the idea of, well, obviously there are hospital dramas, for instance, you know, the likes of Grey's Anatomy and House and what have you that are, remain incredibly popular, even though it's a thing that's always set within one venue, because that's a great narrative structure you know people oh are they dead no they're not dead we've brought them back and and you hear time and time again this idea cpr particularly being this this thing that actually in real life is nowhere near as successful generally as as it is in in medical dramas no and actually i have a interesting sort of side note about cpr it was actually developed here in cleveland ohio uh claude beck lived here and worked for the Cleveland Clinic, he developed the first defibrillator, which we have on display at the Dittrich Museum where I work. And he, after using the defibrillator and making adjustments to it, decided uh, that it was, he wanted to start a training program that would help people learn how to resuscitate someone on the street if it was necessary. So he developed a training program and there's all these wonderful black and white videos where not only is he training people how to do it, but then he brings back people who had been brought back to life from this technique and interviews them. And so there's these wonderful black and white reels of people sort of like, I was dead and now I'm alive. And it's it's wonderfully a miraculous kind of progressive, excited narrative that gets told. And I personally lost someone I was performing CPR on. So I know it doesn't always work. To finish up this part, I want to stay with 
medicine and look at the relationship of doctors to to dying in a different way in that you know we've been talking so far about a person a human being dying and then once they're dead they're no longer a person they're they're a thing a corpse a a body and throughout the years throughout the centuries there's been like a sort of ongoing debate with doctors about anatomy about the use of bodies about how doctors learn how to treat human bodies by you know dissection and and bodies and that carries on right up to this day so let's let's talk about the politics of of anatomy i guess Sure. Well, you know, it ha- it goes back a long way. I actually gave a talk on this at the New York Academy of Medicine. And then last week in Kentucky, I, I gave a similar kind of uh, historical feature on it. Anatomy was more or less illegal for huge chunks of time. Like, you weren't allowed to dissect human bodies. So Galen, who was operating about 100 AD on Roman gladiators, he developed one of the early anatomy textbooks, but he based it on things like pigs and dogs and monkeys. And while you can get a lot out of that, you can't, it's not exactly the same. I mean, a pig has a three-lobed liver or something. You know, it's different than the human body. Dogs have a curved femur bone and we don't. Uh, So a lot of the uh, anatomical drawings were not correct, but it was a textbook that had been used even after dissection became available. So you'd actually have people dissecting a body and looking at the textbook and going, this body must be weird. It doesn't match Galen. So it wasn't until Vesalius came along, Andreas Vesalius, and he basically did Fabric of the Human Body, which is the most one of the most famous uh, early anatomy textbooks. And it was accurate. It was the first time that people really could see into the body. And it, it was beautiful and accurate and interesting and fascinating, but still kind of magically artistic. The bodies were always moving and alive. So even the skeletons, you've probably seen images of like the praying skeleton sometimes that'll show up places. And that's from Vesalius. So it changed the way people saw the interior of bodies. And it became necessary at that point, partly through Vesalius, that the doctors did their own dissecting. Because before the doctors would watch dissections happening. Uh, There weren't as many bodies available. There was a lot of reasons for that. But then all of a sudden the doctor was expected to know how to dissect a body, expected to have done dissections. And there were more doctors as time goes on. So by the 18th century, you've got a lot of doctors and you need a lot of bodies and there's not refrigeration or preservation techniques. So it gets to be a bit, well, messy. (laughs) And so people start looking for bodies in places like in graves that belong to someone and uh, borrowing the bodies, taking them out of the graves, robbing the graves. They were called resurrection men. And then, you know, either doing the dissections themselves or they they would sell bodies to medical students yeah, this is very scandalous because people really felt that it was a, a great desecration and people who were wealthy enough could afford big tombs and means of protecting the bodies and poor people and minority groups were unable to protect their dead. So that meant most of anatomy was being done. Like in the United States, a lot of it was done on black bodies and in England, a lot of it was done on poor bodies. So there's this huge ethical dilemma about how it even gets started in the first place. And then you have even slightly um, murderous stories like the Burke and Hare murders who they were selling bodies to, you know, medical students, and then people weren't dying fast enough, so they helped them along, which would be murder. <laughs> so all that is in the background history of dissection, and it's, it's you know, it's in people's imagination as well. And so let's bring that up to today, and there, there are, keeps going this argument about whether or not medical students need dissection as part of their training. Right. In fact, uh, there are medical schools being built right now where the debate is, do we need a dissection, a cadaver lab? They're expensive. Just the air circulation and ductwork alone is incredibly expensive because you obviously you're dealing with bodies and potential pathogens. And it's 
it's very price prohibitive for certain schools to update their equipment. And so people are saying, you know, we have all of this technology now. We can do virtual dissections. There's a, a company called Syndaver that makes synthetic cadavers. You have many, many people are suggesting that we don't really need to do dissections anymore. Just show the body on a digital screen. And then you have people on the other side saying, but it's not a real body. It's not going to be the same as making your first cut as a doctor into the flesh of a body. And you're not actually giving them that experience. And so the debate rages on and people get very heated on both sides. And I kind of see, I sort of see both sides. I see on one hand, if you're not going to be an osteopath or something, you know, if you're not going to actually be someone getting in and doing surgeries, you're just going to be a, I don't know, a pediatrician or something. Maybe I can kind of see the argument for not dissecting a body. But I also see the other side that actually opening a body for the first time with a knife by yourself is a, a hugely meaningful and sort of self-structuring event that happens for doctors. And so I don't really, I, I try not to take sides in the debate, but it is really, really heated and I don't think it's going to go away. And to elaborate a bit on that second point you made, there's an idea that just the very idea of, of dissecting a body is somehow a, a, a sort of rite of passage for a doctor into a an elite, I guess, into a, a, you know, a, a group of fellow doctors. Yes, and I've actually heard it used in exactly that way, that like this is a rite of passage and we are a special group of people that can do this. And that's obviously very troubling in its own way sometimes, but... In a culture where we we don't have certain kinds of rituals anymore, we've stepped away from certain kinds of rituals, it certainly doesn't mean that we don't still have them. And this is one, the opening of a body in a certain way, your first time, sort of. Um, and many, there's even doctors at the universe, Case Western University who write about write a paper called My First Cut, where they basically talk about the experience. And I think many people feel that that's how you make a doctor. Whether or not that's correct or not, that's a big part of constructing that identity. This is a healer. This healer must know the interior of a body. And it's still relatively a new idea because, as I said, up until before this alias, you, you probably weren't dissecting your own body, even if you were a doctor. And then even after that. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Brandy Scalacci and we're talking about her book Death's Summer Coat, what the history of death and dying can tell us about life and living. And Brandy, in this part I want to well I want to look at some other cultures around the world and their death rituals. But to sort of set that up and you know it would be quite easy to look at the weird and wacky stuff other people do and and you know and and think it's odd. But of course in our history we've had some rituals that we wouldn't now recognize as normal and I want to I want us to look at the Victorians in depth for a bit because a lot of our rituals that we do have now for instance burying bodies in cemeteries the funeral itself the idea of you know, mourning and a widow in black and everything come from that period of you know Victorian England and 19th century America but they also have lots of really crazy stuff that we don't do anymore <laughs> so I want to talk about memento mores and particularly the photographs which are reproduced in your book which are just incredible Incredible. Thank you. Th those come from the collection of Steve Gigenero, and he has uh, quite a number of them. The largest collection of them, I think, is Stanley Burns' collection in the Burns Archive. But these are photographs where dead children, frequently children, sometimes adults, 
are posed as though they're alive. And this happened for a couple of reasons. One, photography was very expensive and not everybody could afford it. And so it's not like now, I mean, I can't even imagine this making sense just now when we've got iPhones and you can take a photograph every second of the day and people do, and then they post them online. So <laughs> there's a lot of photography, but there wasn't. And it was expensive. They used silver plates for some of them. And it was very, it was a big process. And so you might not have any baby pictures done or any childhood pictures. And so if your child dies, the only means you have of retaining sort of their face and features was either to have a painting done, which you're probably not going to afford either, or to have this photograph. So they would photograph them, but they didn't photograph them as though they were dead. They would frequently pose them as though they were alive. And the strangest ones are where they're posed with other living children. And at least a few of them, I have trouble telling which one is dead. <laughs> so that gets to be very strange. You think, I know one of these is not alive and I'm not sure which. And I think the, the one that strikes me the most actually in the Burns archive has a young lady standing up and she's got her hand resting on each of her parents' shoulders who are sitting down. And I automatically assumed one of the parents had died. And actually the girl who is standing is the dead body. And so really uncanny experience to look at some of these. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They're Some of them have been colorized. So there's a little faint blush on the cheek and they're just fascinating artifacts, but essentially they would put them in their homes on mantelpieces and other parts of the house. This picture of a dead body, it's just not something uh, I think that's easy for us to understand. No, I, I can't. I can hardly imagine a more transgressive thing to do now. It is so shocking. It is, and also to think about the fact, like I have reproduced a card that was in the on the back of one of the photos that Steve DeGennaro let me use for the the book. And it actually has instructions for how to pose the body and how to do his hair. And of course, we do this to an extent for funerals in the U.S. In the U.S., we do have a, a viewing. Most people do viewings uh, and, and or open caskets during the funeral. So you do have a sense of, okay, well, they did their hair this way and we'll put makeup on them. And so to an extent, it's not completely strange that way. But the fact that they literally got them up out of coffin, they're not in coffins. You know, they got them up and they posed them and they put clothes on them and they have them seated in chairs or sometimes standing. And I'm not quite exactly sure what goes into making a, a corpse stand up like that for a photo. But it, it's fascinating. And that there's a set of twins, I think also, which was very distressing because you have these two little girls dressed exactly the same. One of them's alive and one of them is dead. And it has to make you wonder what it's like for the living twin to sit there next to a body that looks almost exactly like them but is dead. One of the other things that the Victorians did that might strike us as, as a bit weird and wacky in the modern world, but actually is weirdly making a comeback, is the idea of death jewellery. Yes, beautiful stuff. And hair jewellery, particularly. They take the hair of the dead, weave it into remarkable patterns. It looks like lace. Uh, they would put it inside of brooches or they would have it in rings, sometimes in necklaces or hairpins or other kinds of things. And then people would wear them. And it was a way of kind of wearing your mourning around with you. And on one hand, like I said, it's a very strange thing. And you, you wouldn't normally think that we would do that kind of thing today. But a lot of people buy the vintage jewelry. And on top of that, recently, there's been a couple cases where people have taken the ashes of the deceased, mixed it with ink, and then had tattoos done, literally wearing the dead body on their skin in a way. And so I, th I feel like there's ways in which we've re- appropriated some of these ideas. They don't look the same, but it is an interesting way of saying I'm taking some of this person around with me every day. 
I mentioned in the beginning of this section that a lot of the things that we would take for granted now, like just the funeral, the the rituals that we go through in a funeral, the funeral parlour, even the idea that there is you know somebody else now that looks after the body rather than it being in your home parlour, if indeed you still have a home parlour. These things come from that Victorian period and they just seem so... It's difficult to imagine anything else, isn't it? The idea of a funeral ritual is, is a thing that seems very set in stone. And actually over the years, there's been a backlash against that the idea of a, a, a funeral industry the death industry controls the means by which we carry out the rituals at, at the end of life so let's perhaps talk about that tension sure it is true i mean one of the things that i think is interesting is how recent embalming as a practice is and it was largely it became popular during the civil war in the united states because you had a war taking place in the southern part of the united states where it's very warm and bodies were being sent back to the north to be identified by their families and people had to be able to recognize them when they got there so embalming is one of those practices that people just take for granted that of course you embalm a body even though it's bad for the environment and even though in many respects it's not really serving a purpose because you don't actually ultimately want to preserve the body because you're going to put it in the ground anyway. So it's kind of interesting that, of course, you just have that done. Nobody actually asks you if you know you go to the funeral parlor and that's just how it happens. So I think that's interesting. The other one is, um, as you say, someone else basically takes control for you. You call the funeral director. It's a little bit different between the U.S. and the U.K., but not radically different. So when my grandmother passed, we called the uh, the funeral home director, who's also a mortician, and basically everything was taken care of from that point. And we really had no, we didn't come and we didn't take the body to them. They came and got it. We didn't wash the body. We didn't dress the body. Someone else basically did all of that for us. And in the past, you always did that for your loved one. That was one of your last kindnesses to them in this life. So someone else takes that from us. And we don't think, it's not like we feel like we're being cheated or that they're stealing it. It's just become the new normal and people just recognize that it is so. But you're pointing out there's been a bit of a backlash and that's partly to do with the expense. It's very expensive. And if you don't have life insurance to cover those expenses, it can be a serious strain on a family. And most people don't realize that it's actually legal and permissible to do home funerals if you want to. You just have to go, you have to uh, do some of the activities yourself. You have to apply for death certificate and things like that, register the death. Uh, and most people are just in the process of grief or not interested in trying to figure all of that out. But it is true and it does exist. The Natural Death Handbook actually in the UK gives instructions for how to make that more easy to obtain. And then places in the US like Elemental, sort of a natural death way of, of handling uh, your loved one's final moments. And you can actually build your own rituals. You can be buried without a casket. There's all these things that are capable of, but most people don't know. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's spend some time talking about some of the ways that other cultures around the world have dealt with death rituals then. And, and I guess I, I, I want to talk about these in terms of what we can learn from them, how we can better deal with death ourselves by looking at some of these rituals. So the Tibetan sky burial... Yes. First, I encountered that, I think I was watching a documentary, and then I did a, quite a bit more research into it. But essentially, they Tibet is way up there. It's on the roof of the world, and there's not you're not going to bury people up there. It's permafrost. And there's not trees, really, so you're not going to burn people. Those are practical considerations. But in addition, the Tibetans have this idea that we ought to be part of the life cycle, and that you shouldn't pollute the earth, but rather give back to the earth. And so when they lose a loved one, they ceremonially dissect the body and 
they feed the body to birds. And that sounds terrible. I, mean, I think people in their minds, you can get all kinds of horrible ideas about what that would be like. It's actually a very clean and environmentally appropriate way of disposing a body up in the, the northern climes. And so the birds eat the body and they feel that that way they're giving back and that the life sort of carries on and nourishes another living being. And then you're also not polluting the ground. And so, and they do a lot of, they chant and they pray for the body and they pray for the soul beyond the body that the Tibetans have this concept of the Tibetan wheel of life. And so they also believe in reincarnation uh, or many of them do Tibetan Buddhists. And so it's a really, it's a rich understanding of cycles, I think. But if you just told somebody that you were going to take their loved one up on a hill and hack it up and feed it to birds, they would be horrified. I actually think this is, in the way you've described, a really nice green ritual. But it, there is some poor sod who has to chop the body up. Right. <laughs> yes. And, and that can't be terribly pleasant. But then again, we have doctors who dissect bodies now. So, you know, there's funny ways in which as much as we think, wow, that culture is really weird. Well, we have dissections going on all the time, all around us, down the street at the local medical school, and those bodies are then later cremated and given back to their families. And, you know, we don't think that's odd, but we think it's odd that, that this is going on. So it's kind of funny. I, one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I like to talk about other cultures' death practices isn't so much to say they're doing something so cool and so different, but rather just to remind us that our own practices are constructed, which means we can change them. We can change them if we want to. Well, taking that a little bit further, the sky burial or the um, the wari of Brazil, who, well, they've done away with the, uh, they don't need the vultures. No, no, they don't. <laughs> uh, and actually, so the, the, it was an older practice. I do believe that it's not, I don't think it's still practiced, but they used to eat their dead. And the ritual was a similarly ritualized dissection of parts and different family members ate different parts of the body, depending on how near you were related to them. And then afterwards, the, the remains would be ceremonially burned and then the bones would be buried under the hearth fire of your living relatives so that the so that they stayed warm, basically. And so at first, it sounds absolutely atrocious. Well, it's still, actually, I have, I have a little bit of trouble with this one, but <laughs> I think most people would. However, their reasoning was really interesting. When they asked why they ate the bodies of their loved ones, what the people said was, well, we didn't want to put them in the cold ground. And it was the same idea that somehow by consuming them, they carried them on and that their lives sort of re were reinvested in the community in various ways. And even the fact that they bury the bones under the family fire pit gives you a sense of just how much they want the dead to be incorporated into the sort of warmth and life of the family rather than, you know, we have cemeteries out where it's cold and dark, and, you know, and, and uh, they think that's appalling. Like they think the fact that we bury people out in the cold and dark is absolutely appalling. So, or would have thought that, I should say. There are various peoples around the world that do one or other types of mummification and then just keep their dead relatives around the place living with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> My favourite culture that I, I like to, to use as an example of that is the Turagians, and I reference them in the book as well. And partly it's because, you know, I just said that we tend not to plan for death very effectively. We sort of have basic ideas, but, you know, we spend a lot of time planning for weddings in this culture. And I know that because there's all those bride magazines. And if anybody's had a friend getting married, you'll know that there are rituals involved. It's a long and drawn out process. In the Trajan culture, you prepare for your funeral more than your wedding. And the funeral is a big deal. And it's going to be the last most giant party you're ever going to throw. Uh, and they're not really considered fully and officially dead until after you've had the funeral. But if you die before your relatives have managed to collect enough funds to throw 
row the appropriate sized funeral for your rank, then they can't really consider you dead yet. So they would they wrap the bodies and they frequently keep them in their homes, which in this particular environment, if they kept them well wrapped, they ultimately sort of mummify over time. And apparently, and I'm getting most of this out of anthropologists' work, I should say, uh, on the Wari and the Trajan cultures and also Tibet. Uh, anthropologists who've gone and seen these practices explain that the family members frequently ritually feed the dead. So if your grandmother is mummified and she's sort of sitting in the corner of your house as part of the furniture, then you would leave food for her once or twice a day and in a ritual way you're feeding her and she's part of the family still and you're not you're not treating her as though she's passed away you're treating her as though she's still officially there with you until after the funeral and the celebration is is properly taken care of and then at that point you're you you have died so <laughs> i think that's a really blurring those lines between life and death is something we don't do so much in the west but it is done in other places even prayers for the dead and the idea that somehow the dead might help you do things your day of the dead this concept that you're actually celebrating your dead relative and that in some way that they're there with you is practiced all over the world, but not so much, not as much or not in the same way in the West. The last one of these I want to look at, which is, is in some respects perhaps the strangest or the scariest, is the is it the Ilongot Ilongot people of the of the Philippines, and they are so enraged and upset by the death of a loved one that they deal with this by going off and or they used to this again it's not something that happens anymore but would go off and behead some random person. And actually, what I want to talk about here is again, you know, what we could can learn from this practice is actually the experience of the anthropologist that was studying them, Renato and Michelle Rosaldo, and, um, and what happened to them. Right. So the anthropologists that were there, I think they reacted, in my opinion, the way any of us would. I'm sorry, you, you did what? Like someone died and you did what? You, you went and killed someone else? How does that make any sense? And he kept sort of interpreting it as a revenge killing. He'd think, okay, so somehow in your mind, these people are guilty for this death. And so you're going to go kill them as revenge. And the, the tribesmen kept trying to correct him and be like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is about the fact that we need somewhere to put our, we have to throw the rage away. And the way we do that is we we cut off someone's head, <laughs> an enemy's head, and we throw the head away and we throw it away. We don't keep it. So it's not like a trophy. We throw it away and we put all the anger for the death on that head and then we throw it away. And he just, I could just sort of almost imagine the facial expression that he must've made. Like you, no, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not following you at all. And he really tried to justify, rationalize it in a number of different ways. But then what ultimately happened is he lost his wife. They were both doing field work. She slipped and fell into a river and she died and he found her body. And he writes about this experience years later that when he found her body, he was so enraged. He was mad at her. He was mad at himself. He was mad at the world. He was so enraged. But of course, he doesn't have a ritual. He's not going to go cut someone's head off and throw it away. That he carried that rage around with him. And that's incredibly debilitating. I mean, have rage inside you that you can't fully process. It begins to just destroy you from the inside. And so what he began to sort of understand is that while we may not condone going and cutting someone's head off and throwing it away, they had ritualized a place to put the anger and then a place for that anger to be thrown away, to be let go, basically. And we tend to, I think people don't realize that anger is a part of grief. People tend to go, oh, well, yes, you're sad. You're sad because someone has died and that makes perfect sense. And we don't understand that rage is part of it, a completely irrational sense that you've been betrayed by this person's death and that it isn't fair and that you don't always know how to handle it and that we don't always 
know how to diagnose what's actually going on in our anger. And so it gets, it, it does get put away. It does get put onto other things, usually onto other people. <laughs> you know, you snap at someone or you attack someone for something or, or you're, you're mean to your relatives. I mean, I think that's why so many fights, I hate to say this, but the only other place that I can think of where you get this many family members together with this many fights is at a wedding. But funerals, it happens, right? Fights break out, long-standing grievances. And it's probably not that they're actually angry at each other as much as they're just experiencing this kind of grief rage. Just one question to end off then. We talked earlier about this idea of, you know, modern science, modern medicine being seen as as a way to gain some form of immortality. And actually, modern science has given us a way to attain some type of immortality. (laughs) I'm talking about social media, Facebook pages, the internet. What happens to our Facebook page when we die? That's that's a good question. And actually, I think this is this might even have changed again since I wrote the book, because Facebook and Twitter and these other social media places are are starting to figure we have to have a means of handling this kind of thing. At the moment, or last I checked, Facebook page, if, if you die and it can be proved that you die, they freeze your page, but they don't necessarily delete it. So unless you have a family member that you've given the authority to delete the page, the page just stays active. It's a strange kind of frozen memorial to whoever it is that has passed away. And so I had quoted in the book that I wrote a story about a a woman who her friend had committed suicide, I think, or overdose. I'm actually a little, I forget a little bit, but, and her page was still active. And so she still gets reminders because the pages can sometimes still send you reminders at birthdays and anniversaries and things like that. And she feels haunted by this page where you see this person who looks like they're alive. It's a Facebook page. You see the last thing that they posted, but they're gone. And that I think can be, some people have suggested it's a good way of grieving, a good kind of memorial. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Other people have suggested it's like being haunted by what you've left behind. And there are, in fact, companies now that you can pay a fee to that will go around sort of collect up and delete and get rid of your various ephemeral selves online 
but I don't think you can ever fully get rid of them. I mean, one of the fascinating things is, you know, Google yourself sometimes. I have my students do this every now and again. And you find aspects, bits and pieces of yourself that someone else has posted or some other photograph that you forgot existed. I don't think that can go away. I think years and years after someone's gone, you're still going to have these things. And that used to only happen if you were a celebrity. And so now suddenly this happens and you're not a celebrity. You're just, you're John, Jill, you know, someone from working at the post office and then you die. And then the next thing you know, there's this kind of strange immortality that follows you around. I've been talking to Brandy Scalacci. We've been talking about her book, Death's Summer Coat, what the history of death and dying can tell us about life and living. It's out now from in the UK from Elliot and Thompson Books. So Brandy, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Well, thank you. And I just want to end by saying that, you know, I think all of us can probably learn something by looking at the history of both the way we used to live and also the way that we used to die and probably take some comfort in that we can change those rituals if we really want to. I'm John Lloyd, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Caitlin Doty was born and raised in Hawaii. She moved to California after gaining a degree in medieval history from the University of Chicago. She is now a licensed funeral director, living and working in L.A. She's also a writer, performer and filmmaker, and the creator of The Order of the Good Death, an online community of artists, actors, poets, musicians and directors who are committed to staring down their death fears through art. Caitlin is the author of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium. So, Caitlin, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I don't know about that. I'm not really a filmmaker. I have, like, a web series. I think it's a little... They are films. YouTube videos are films. They are, yes. (laughs) And I guess guess they're being treated more seriously now, but I don't know that I would go as far as to say that I'm a filmmaker. That's That's a little beyond my pay grade. Well, I want to talk first of all about how you ended up working in a crematorium. Where did it begin? Well, we, I mean, we could say that it began in that we all die and that we want to face it. Um, I had an interesting experience when I was young. I was about eight. I, I witnessed a traumatic death, and it really, really messed me up, made me incredibly afraid of death for a very long time as a child. And as I grew up, that fear turned into fascination, mm-hmm. more academic fascination. And I went and got my degree in medieval history, which is filled with death, obviously, goes without saying. And then I really started working or looking for a job at a crematory, not totally knowing what I wanted to do. I was still young, maybe Mm -hmm. 22 or 23. But almost as soon as I got into the actual work, it's hard to explain, but I just knew that I was doing what I needed to be doing. And that sounds kind of precious, but mm-hmm. it really did. It was a sense of like, oh, okay, you need to tell people what's going on behind the scenes. You need to, to do this work. And so let's talk about what the early days were like when you first started working there. Well, I guess what were the most, what were the most surprising things? Well, first of all, what was surprising is that I was, I was pretty much there alone most days. I had a boss and mm-hmm. he was keeping a sharp eye on me. But I wasn't working with families much. I would arrange cremations with the families, mm-hmm. but they weren't there for the cremation. It was just me there. And that struck me as a little strange, because I always imagined, I hadn't been to many funerals, but I mm-hmm. always imagined funerals to be big group 
events and rituals, and that wasn't really the case here. And it was so surprising when we would do, for instance, a witness cremation where a huge Chinese family or a mm-hmm. huge Buddhist family would come in and be a part of the cremation and watch the body be loaded in and push the button to start the whole process. And that really only happened once a week, once every couple of weeks, mm-hmm. given that we cremated you know, seven people a day or something um, was very was very shocking to me. And then also, I guess, just how interesting everyone was, how interesting the dead bodies were, how interesting their stories were, how interesting the families were. And, I mean, you mentioned the idea of, you know, you'd be surprised that there wasn't always people there or often people there. I think there's, there's always going to be differences in sort of death rituals in the UK and the US. And I've been, been to a number of cremations and there will normally be, you know, a service and then the coffin goes through a curtain, goes along a conveyor belt, and who knows what happens then behind the scenes. Well, we're going to talk about what happens behind the scenes, of course. But there is that, there's a service that's there for that to then happen normally. But my understanding is that you don't see the dead body. No, no. It's all, it's all. We don't have, yeah, we we don't tend to have viewings in the same way as their standard in the US. But what I was going to say was, you know, you can even, to the extent that in the US and the crematorium that you were working at, you can be so removed from it that you can order a cremation on the internet and have the, have the remains sent to you in the post. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the dystopian future <laughs> that's right around the corner. And I don't see that, unless there's a real pushback on it, I don't see that changing anytime mm. soon because Amazon Prime is great. I love it. I don't want to have to go to the store. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to have to do hard things and have hard interactions. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard interaction to go face the fact that someone you love is dead. And if you can just type in some stuff online and have it delivered, that's easier whether that's better, I would argue no. I would argue that that's, that's something that is human and you have to face, and that we shouldn't be putting down through the post. We're going to get drones with little little urns. Yeah, little yeah, yeah, death drones. <laughs> they come pluck the body up and then deposit the ashes back at the end. Careful what you say. It's possible. Let's talk about that behind the curtain then. So what's, what's a crematorium? What does it look like? What does it sound like? And obviously, what does it smell like? Mm. Oh, obviously, what does it smell like? <laughs> well, it, it's pretty industrial. It's a pretty industrial environment. Uh, a lot of metal, a lot of concrete. There's really, at least the ones I've worked in, really a roar that when you turn the, we call them retorts on the big cremation machines on, a roar just fills the room. And as far as smell, the heat is so high that it's not barbecuing the person. It's not cooking the person. It's, it's flash destroying them. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's a bit of a, a singy smell. Some people think it smells like eggs. People have all sorts of things that they believe that it smells like. There's also, if, if you have a preparation room attached, there's a kind of antiseptic smell that comes with it as well. But yeah, it's not, it's not like an overwhelming smell of burning flesh or anything. It's not a horror show, but it's also an industrial environment. But there can also be the smells of, of the bodies as well. You talk in the book about the various stages of decomposition that you might end up, depending on what state the body is in when it arrives with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It smells... Uh, people have different ideas about what it smells like too, but I think it smells like licorice, kind of a, a sickly sweet licorice, mm. some fish thrown in there. And if, you, if you've smelled 
rotting garbage or a rotting animal, mm. you know what rotting human flesh smells like. It's it's very similar because we're an animal just like mm-hmm. any other animal. Where are these bodies coming from generally? Well, since I worked in I've worked in both San Francisco, Oakland area and the Los Angeles area and since mostly lower cost cremation not bare minimum cremation, mm-hmm. but lower cost cremation. A lot of the bodies, it attracts pretty much everyone. Really, really high income people tend to do something a little more elaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, with cremation, there's a sense of, okay, I can't afford it, I have to get the cheapest thing. But there's also an enlightened people, a lot of people, boomers, even if they're wealthy, they feel like it's a more enlightened choice to make. So you really get people of all stripes coming through that door. Not walking, rolling in, but coming through the door. And cremation itself is its not as popular in America as a burial is, is it? No, well, uh, we're reaching, they say that in the next you know, couple of years it'll be 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, so but I think we're just, a bit ahead of that. Yeah, yeah, about 70% mm-hmm. in the UK. So definitely not quite as popular, but it's going there and it's, it's showing no signs of stopping. Um, it's probably not going to, yeah, that's not going to stop the upward trend anytime soon. And what do you think is driving that? I mean, obviously here there's like issues of space and stuff, which is not really as much yeah, of an issue in the States. They talk about that in the States all the time. And it's like, have you ever flown over the States? Like, <laughs> trust me, we have room. And also, if people cared about burial spaces, we would have more burial spaces. Mm-hmm. We would say, don't build that Walmart, don't build that Chipotle, put it in another cemetery. But cremation really started gaining popularity in the 60s in the US. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, it was pagan. And it was it was something that you didn't do mm-hmm. or you were lower class or it wasn't for, wasn't for everyone. And it really came with both Jessica Mitford, who was, a, who was an English woman. Mm-hmm. We know who she and, is. And uh, she, she came and she said... The non-Nazi one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the communist who lived in who lived in Oakland actually, and the crematory, the first crematory that I worked with actually <laughs> cremated her body. Interestingly enough, fun fact. And uh, she came in and said everything is far too expensive. Funeral directors are are hucksters who are mm-hmm. taking you for all your money. And at the same time, the Pope made it okay for Catholics to be cremated. Mm-hmm. So it was this perfect storm. But even then, people wanted cremation. But they weren't actually getting it, and it took about another 20 years. AIDS in the 80s was a big influence towards making cremation more acceptable. Mm -hmm. And then even more recent years, the recession, and there's just been a cultural narrative that's been built up of cremation is the right thing to do, it's the less expensive thing to do, it's the more enlightened thing to do, and so people parrot that a little bit. They, without even thinking, they say, well, of course I'm going to be cremated because this and this and this. And that's really where we've gone as a deaf culture. And it's interesting to see it, to watch it evolve historically. I'm Rachel Cook. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So talk us through a typical, if there is such a thing, cremation. What happened? Sure. Um, so you would you would have the body and the machine, which is a brick-lined machine, heats up to about um, oh, 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. 
no, 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 Celsius, <laughs> something Celsius, and hot Celsius, very hot Celsius. And uh, the body goes in, and it's usually in, it can be either in the wooden coffin casket, or it can just be in a cardboard box. Mm-hmm. It has to be in something. I actually prefer the cardboard box because it burns up immediately, and it's just the body left mm-hmm. with the flames. And so uh, the machine goes on, flames generally shoot down from the roof and the sides, and incinerate the body. Everything, any clothes and, and hair and skin go up very quickly. Usually anything organic burns off during the process. Mm-hmm. About halfway through, you open it up and you move the body, usually with a long pole, and move it forward to get different parts of uh, your internal organs burned. And at the end, what you're left with is inorganic bone fragments. Mm-hmm. And you sweep all those guys out, and you remove any metal, like a hip or knee implant that was in the body, take the ashes over, and that aren't actually ashes, that are more chunks of bone, very brittle, and then you put them in what's called a cremulator. Mm-hmm. A cremulator. And you whir them up in about 20 seconds, and then what you're left with is what we think of as ashes mm-hmm. or cremated remains. And, I mean, the other thing that's a lot more popular in America than it is in the UK is embalming of the bodies as well. So talk us through that process in the book. You know, there's generally somebody else that comes in and does the, the embalming in the crematorium that you, that you originally work at. What do they do? Why is it done and how does it work? Well, it's done. The reason it's done dates back to the Civil War. Mm. And it was a thing that evolved because the northern soldiers were going down to the south to fight. And they were dying on the southern battlefields, which were very hot. The bodies were rotting very quickly. And the families wanted these bodies brought back up to the north. And so these uh, embalmers, new embalmers who were originally almost like ambulance chasers, because they were going from battlefield to battlefield, setting up their tents taking unclaimed dead, embalming them and propping them up outside like advertisement, like come on down to the best embalmer in town. And for a while that made sense because you were trying to transport bodies over great distances. But what happened is that these people who were originally seen as hucksters decided to go professional. So after the war, decided to convince the public that their services were needed and that they were sanitizing the body and disinfecting the body and only they were qualified to do it. And that's really what made funeral directors, quote unquote, professional now. And that's Mm -hmm. still somewhat how they're seen today. And embalming, as it's done, practiced now in the typical American funeral home, is, is chemical preservation of the body. Body comes in, first thing is the vein in the neck is opened and the blood is drained. And then the carotid artery is is cut open as well and in is pumped, blood comes out, chemicals go Mm -hmm. in throughout the circulatory system and the formaldehyde or whatever chemical is in there fixes the proteins to stop decomposition Mm -hmm. for a period of time. Um, And then there's a long metal thing called the trocar, which is stabbed into the stomach and out is sucked any any goop in the stomach, and chemicals are put in there as well. In a general process, the body will sit overnight or for a couple hours to kind of set, mm-hmm. and then the makeup goes on. They're dressed in a suit and wheeled out to be presented to the family. And again, that's much more common in America is this idea of the you know the family coming and viewing the. Right. The, the, I was going to say the corpse. I mean, what do we call it at this I point? I call it the corpse. You I do. call it the corpse, yeah. And that's, um, yeah, I, I love the word corpse. I think, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a beautiful word. It even, corpse, it even sounds lovely. And that's the technical word for it. Mm-hmm. And we don't really, you know, we say, oh, you know, the dead or the loved one. Or we're so used to euf- using euphemisms that when we use the actual word, 
It sounds shocking. There's a, there's a scene very early on in the book where you say to a, a, a guy whose wife has died, you know, were you the husband? And he yeah. said, oh, I am the husband. Right. And there is this, you know, there's this, always this tension between talking about a body as a person or a thing. Mm-hmm. And that one, I think that I would say that that was my bad because mm-hmm. I should, you know, there was a continuing relationship after death and that was a misspoke, misspeak mm. on my part. Yeah, it was um, one of your, it was your I'm first sure. ever. Yeah, it was my first ever yeah. removing a body from, mm. a, from a home. But as far as calling, and I guess still, even though I completely agree with not using euphemisms, mm-hmm. at the same time, if I'm working with a family, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to call them by their name. I'm going to say, Mr. Johnson, mm-hmm. you, know, what, you know, what would he have liked? What would your husband have liked? I'm not going to say, like, what do we want to do with the corpse? Or, you know, I'm probably not going to use those words so harshly just because it's going to sound grating, even though they're the actual correct mm-hmm. terminology. But corpse, I love the word corpse. You mentioned not wanting to use euphemisms, and really one of the themes of this book is you know, this idea that in the West particularly, we've become insulated from death and we're afraid of it because it's not a part of our life anymore. But even within that, there are levels to which death is insulated from us. And there's an incredible chapter in this book about what we do with dead babies. Basically, so can you? What happens to babies? <laughs> sure. Tell us about like, the dead Caitlin. babies. Um, I mean, well, all manner of things happen to dead babies, but in the two, um, the two main hospitals in Berkeley and Oakland, we had a contract with where we came and picked up the babies who had been born stillborn mm-hmm. or had been born or died shortly after birth, and the hospital would offer their families a free cremation. Which I guess is kind of nice, but also like, sorry, your baby's dead. Here's the cremation. And we would pick them up and bring them to our facility. And I would cremate sometimes four or five of them in an afternoon because they they burned so quickly. They mm-hmm. cremated so quickly. And they're so small. And so it would really only take about 15 minutes for the whole cremation to take place. And I'd sweep out their little tiny bones. And I had to actually grind them by hand because the big machine that we used didn't work. And... You know, sometimes families wouldn't pick them up. We would offer, of course, you know, here we are, we, you know, we sell mini urns and we mm-hmm. sell the teddy bears or whatever you want to keep the ashes in or just the, what it comes in, the plastic container. But some people just didn't want them, which is almost understandable. You know, maybe you don't want to acknowledge that this was a, a, a life or, mm-hmm. or that, that makes you uncomfortable. But it is sad to see the people who really did want these babies and what a tragic thing to happen. And the other thing that I think most people would not really think about but obviously have to be has to be dealt with is just body parts and things. I mean there's a, again there's a great scene where you, you basically get a head in a box. Yeah, two heads in two a box. Two heads in a box. Yeah, that was uh, I mean other heads in the box, but the two heads was the first. Um, yeah, we did we also had another contract with uh, and that's kind of what made this first place I worked so fascinating because we had all of these different contracts with, with different... And right before I started, they had the contract with the homeless and indigent den mm-hmm. of Alameda County. And I'm glad I missed that part because that's a lot of a lot of additional bodies, but um, a lot of additional work. But uh, we also had a contract with a, a body donation company, a scientific body donation company, and they would send us parts of people, heads, torsos, legs, whatever it was, and we would cremate those individually and Mm -hmm. usually scatter them at sea because I guess that's what they wanted, the family Mm -hmm. wanted. Yeah, and and I've, I've been doing a lot of research recently for a piece on body donation, and the history of body donation is so strange. In the UK, 
you don't have private donation companies, mm. you can donate to a medical school the same way you can donate to a medical school in the U.S. But in the U.S., you can also almost sell your body to a body broker. Mm-hmm. And there are strange laws because you're not actually allowed to... No one's allowed to accept money for a body. You can't trade in, in organs and bodies. That's totally illegal. But if you're a company, you can pay for all of a person's funeral arrangements. Mm-hmm. So you can take the body so they don't have to pay for the funeral arrangements. And then if they've donated, quote-unquote, that body to you, you can take it and sell it for parts, mm-hmm. basically, to different kinds of research. So you're almost the middleman in this, and you're it's a for-profit. Some are non-profit, some are for-profit corporations. And I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. But it also means that there is an incentive to leave your body to science in that way to research because it means you don't your family doesn't bear those funeral costs it is yeah yeah, yeah. and there and the people who sign up are either people who want to stick it to the funeral industry mm-hmm. um or people who really genuinely believe in in helping science and it's not that i'm certainly not anti-science i'm certainly mm-hmm. not anti-advancements in science but it's set up in such a way that there's some situation where it's really people who are least served like there are still anatomy acts which allow homeless Mm. and unclaimed dead to be given to medical schools for dissection which I have issues with in mortuary school we worked on homeless and indigent dead in embalming to practice embalming on and that always sat very poorly with me because these are not people these are people that we didn't take care of during Mm -hmm. their lives and now we're practicing on them basically in their death and that doesn't sit well with me but that's my that's a personal opinion of mine and and however I'm I'm not discouraging scientific donation certainly not discouraging organ donation Mm -hmm. by any by any stretch of the imagination but it's, it's interesting and I'm still kind of grappling with how I how I feel about that. When we go into the second half, I think we'll um, probably stick it to the uh, funeral industry a little bit, okay. as you've just described. But Haven't we already been sticking yeah, it to the no funeral doubt, industry? We're, we're really, we're really going for up, it in I the guess. second part. But um, just to finish this off, I mean, you end up leaving the first crematorium that you, you work at in San Francisco to go to mortuary school in LA. So I wanted to talk about that sort of widening out of your experience to learn more about the death industry before we talk about the death industry mm-hmm. in the second part. Yeah, I wanted to, and I knew pretty much right away that I wanted to see reforms in the funeral industry, and I don't even know if at first I, I entirely knew what that meant mm-hmm. or, or how the functionality would work of something like that, but I just knew that um, I wanted people to see what was going on behind the scenes, and I wanted to understand it, and I wanted to be an expert on this. And I really set out to do that. Mm -hmm. And that included, in California, that's one of the states in the U.S. where you don't actually have to go to mortuary school to become a mortician. Um, You couldn't be an embalmer, but you could just work with the families. But I decided to go anyway. Um, Went to mortuary school for year and a half, two years. Not an entirely necessary experience. Mm -hmm. They don't teach you a lot there that you really need except embalming and I don't actually work as an embalmer Um, but it was a really fascinating way to see to learn even more Mm -hmm. about the industry see what's going on what they were teaching people you know as where these morticians that we have are coming from Thank you.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Caitlin Doty and we're talking about her book Smoke Gets In Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium. And I mentioned, Caitlin, that I wanted to talk about the death industry. Listeners will have just heard before we, we've spoken an interview with the academic Brandy Scalacci and we talked about the growth of our modern funeral rituals from sort of like the Victorian age in England, so the, how we have a funeral, the fact that we bury bodies in cemeteries now rather than on the edge of towns or in churchyards. And yeah, this idea that in America particularly, although we have you know big funeral companies in, in the UK as well, it really is an industry, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and there are in the US there are and and in the UK as well, there are billion dollar corporations that that feed into this and I don't think that all funeral directors are are crooks out to get you. There are a lot of really wonderful people who mm-hmm. work in the funeral industry and care about the people that they're helping. But when you work for a big corporation, so often people have told me, yeah, I care about the family, but I have corporate on the phone with me all the time saying, it looks like you've sold too many cremations this month. Where mm-hmm. are our burials? There's a higher markup on the burials. Why have you not sold enough caskets? Why have you not sold enough of the fancy caskets? And so you can't really really care about the family when you're worried about losing your job or worried about losing you know your bonus mm-hmm. or the things that help your family because you're not upselling the grieving family enough and you have people at the head of these corporations who have never seen a dead body mm-hmm. and that's not what they do what they do is run a corporation they'll bring you in from you know I used to work at Boeing or I used to work at Coca-Cola or whatever it is and they'll bring you in to run this corporation which is fine, that's how corporations work, I guess, but that's not doing the best for a family. And what they've done and what they did in the U.S., it's slowed down a little now, but really the big push initially was to be a corporation that came into every small town and bought up the funeral home mm-hmm. and say it was called, you know, Mon Pa O'Malley's Funeral Home. It would remain Mon Pa O'Malley's Funeral Home, but it would have... Dignity Memorial, for example, underneath it. And they would come in and they would replace everything with their corporate structure and pricing, etc., but leave the name on so the town would still think it was the local community funeral home. Mm-hmm. And again, one of the themes of the book is really that we've gone away from the idea of the family themselves being intimately involved with looking after the, the dead body, washing the body, preparing the body, and being involved with, with the entire process through the idea of small mom-and-pop funeral homes to this idea of big corporations. So why have we gone down that route? I mean, there's obviously... We've talked again a bit in the first part about us being, in the, in the modern world, divorced from the idea of, of death to a, to a great extent, both through just general hygiene reasons, I guess, in, in lots of ways, but through the medical industry, you know, through medical science as well, mechanisms live longer, so we think that, you know, we're further and further away from the idea of death. But is it that, or is it just, a, is it just a, an incredibly profitable business? I mean, why have, have big corporations gone into it? Sure, it's, it's both. It's, it's not like the funeral industry came in and took over and the public had no choice. It really was a dance between the funeral industry and the public. Hmm. So you had originally, again, funeral directors were just the guy who sold you things prior to the Civil War. They were the guy who sold you the casket or the mm-hmm. coffin or the hearse, the horse-drawn hearse. To get to the to get to the church cemetery, mm-hmm. 
And at a certain point, they realized with embalming and with caskets and with services, they could sell you an experience. Mm -hmm. They could sell you, hi, I'm a professional who will come in and take your dead and we will embalm it and we'll make it safe. We'll disinfect it so it's, it's safe for you and we'll bring it in and you'll pay us. And the public was into that. They said, oh, I don't have to do all this hard stuff myself, and the dead body's dangerous? I didn't know. Okay, all right, I'll pay you to do this. And that developed over time, and then when there's anything that's an industry, corporations are going to come into it. So a corporation was just a natural response to what was already an industry, a full-fledged industry, by the time the corporations started. You've already mentioned that you, you studied medieval history and particularly the death side of medieval history. So I say it's a big question. So how are things different? But in terms of you know your perspective, in terms of your views of the of the industry now, what have we lost from then? Well, it's not fair to say at all that people and you can't really say medieval people thought because it's a thousand year period, you know. But in the West, in in the medieval period. You can't say that people weren't afraid of death, because they were. They thought they were going to hell. They thought mm. they were going to burn an eternal hellfire if they weren't doing everything right. So they were absolutely afraid of death and the soul and what that meant. But they weren't as afraid of the corpse. Mm. They were much less afraid of the corpse because they had rituals around it and... The corpses were everywhere. People were dying all the time. You had corpses buried in the churchyard and underneath the floorboards and in the ceiling and in the walls. And you were just surrounded. There are all of these chroniclers who talk about going into church and smelling death mm -hmm. everywhere. And can you imagine going to like your local Episcopalian church and having the smell of death everywhere and bodies in the walls? No, that wouldn't happen now. But it certainly does make me more comfortable with the corpse when you have that kind of consistent exposure. So I would say certainly, and there was also in the Middle Ages, there were reminders of death everywhere. There were memento mori. There was art and dancing skeletons leading people, kings and paupers, to their inevitable, inevitable death and visual reminders that we were going to die. So I would say it was a much more, much more intimate relationship with the dead body than there is now. And now as we're increasingly secular, what's really interesting is that we don't necessarily fear hellfire and mm -hmm. damnation anymore, but we're really afraid of the dead body and interaction with the dead body, but that can be overcome. And what would a society look like that was both secular and really comfortable with the dead body? If we could combine those two things, wouldn't that be a slightly more ideal relationship with death and do away with a lot of the fear? Well, you're still going to fear death. You're never mm -hmm. not going to fear death, but it might help. It's easy to think often that there's there's no other way. So I mean, when we look at the other big things that happen to us throughout life, if we're going to have a you know a baby, you know about it in advance. There's time to you know there's time to plan. When people get married, they can spend years planning for this important ritual. But even when people know you know six months in advance, you know that they're probably going to die. I mean, never mind people who die suddenly. We don't plan funerals. And therefore, you know, the fact that suddenly, oh God, we've got a week to arrange a funeral is a reason why the funeral industry is is there, it's useful, it takes all that away from you. So let's get on to talking about what other ways could there be? How else could we do it? 
And so few people in medical science has gotten so good that it's incredibly rare to have a sudden death mm. these days. I can't even... When I'm, I'm trying to think. I don't know the exact statistic, but I'm trying to think of how many people I worked on on a day-to-day basis who had died in a sudden and tragic way, and they're mm. so young. Most people die when they're older, or they have cancer, or they have a disease, or they were alcoholics, or there's very clear reasons why they died. Car accidents... Homicides are rare, mm-hmm. um, and sudden deaths are even rarer. So there is time to plan. There is time for families to think about it, and you're exactly right. They just don't. They don't have that conversation. And they get put into a position where they're in a funeral home, and nobody's talked about it, nobody's asked the questions. So you're in a funeral home, and the funeral director says, well, this is what you need to get. This is what we'll do for you. We'll embalm the body, mm-hmm. and we'll put it in the casket, and we'll do it all for you, and then... You come in and see the body, and then we'll bury it in the expensive vault and the expensive cemetery, and there you go. And that will be, you know, $13,000. Thank you very much. And the family leaves feeling really dissatisfied and disempowered. Not everyone. Some people absolutely love that pomp and circumstance, and they get a lot out of it, which is great. But a lot of people don't relate to that anymore and don't get a lot out of it. But you can't have... I'm actually starting a funeral home now Mm -hmm. that's much more based in family involvement and families taking care of the bodies at home. And my partner, who's a funeral director, um, partner in the business, said, what are we going to do if we get somebody calling for a home funeral in the middle of the night? Like a surprise home funeral. And what I told her is that there's not really any surprise home funerals. You have to really plan for a home funeral. You can't... Someone can't die at home under hospice and then you're like you know what, let's just keep them for a couple days. You Mm. can do that, but most people will not feel comfortable doing that unless there's some kind of planning around it. And so there's not going to be an emergency home funeral. But at the same time, death is not an emergency. And that's what people also don't tend in this culture not to see it as. They see it as an emergency. But that person is dead. Mm. They're going to be dead 24 hours from now. They're going to be dead two weeks from now. They're dead forever. And you don't need to spring into action. And the way that the industry is set up, if you call a funeral home, even if you call the coroners, if you call the police, they have this sense of spring into action. Mm. Like, oh, we got to call the funeral home right now. No, you don't. That dead body is not dangerous. It's completely safe mm-hmm. where it is. You're completely... You're, unless in the third was like, a horrible homicide out of nowhere, then yes, call the police. But if it's somebody who knew they were going to die, you do not have to spring into action. You can take the time to think about what you want to do. The Order of the Good Death. Let's talk about that. What is it? The Order of the Good Death is a group that's been around for about four years now, and it's um, academics and other death professionals and artists and just people who generally want to bring the conversation about death back into popular culture. And we now have something called Death Salon, which is public events where people come in and all the people who are doing this work share what we're doing and we have art exhibits and we have vendors and it's just a time to come in and feel okay about indulging in your morbid interests. Mm -hmm. The very idea of a good death, this is something, it keeps changing depending on, you know, where we are, uh, you know, around the world or in time, particularly. The idea of what constitutes a good death is always changing. Absolutely, and that's why you have to do it for yourself at Mm -hmm. this point. You have to decide for yourself, do some soul-searching, and figure out what a good death means to you. Is it 
being totally aware until the very end? Is it being surrounded by your friends and family? Is it having complete control? Is it having no control? Is it a cremation? Is it a burial? What are all the components for you of a good death? And nobody can tell you what those are. It really is a personal and family decision, but an exercise that's really worth doing. What about yourself? So we talked at the beginning about how you know reasons for why you might have gone to work in a crematorium in the first place. You know, this book is really fascinating. It's often very funny, but there is obviously also trauma in there as well. You talk about the traumatic incident of seeing a, a, a young girl killed. She wasn't even definitely killed, was she? Well, yeah, that's you what I know, don't know. You, you yeah. don't know, and that's and that's the part that was even worse mm. for me because if I had you know, had gone to her funeral or seen her body, not that they would let some random girl from the mall come to the funeral, I don't know, maybe they would have, um, but it would have so helped me to have seen her body and to have that kind of ending, but to see something so violent and so so horrifying and to assume that she couldn't have survived, but they swept her away and I never saw it, uh, that was almost a more difficult, open-ended thing than any kind of closure would have been. So what I was going to ask was, how is working with death change your perspective absolutely to heal things like that to heal the idea that death is something that is happening to me or or to any of us that death is going after any of us intentionally and a problem with a lot of people when they experience a death is that they're so uncomfortable with their own deaths that they can't really even concentrate on the loss Mm -hmm. they want to be thinking about their dad or their friend who committed suicide or whatever it is but they're so caught up in what does this mean does this mean i'm gonna die what i have to deal with this now what does death mean is it coming for me well yeah but if you do that work in advance the people who of mine that i know who have died since I really started doing this work, their deaths have been easier in a way. And I've been more focused on the actual loss of the relationship and mourning than I have because, yeah, I know I'm going to die already. And I understand that. I understand how death works. And the horror is taken off of it for me. And it's still incredibly sad, but it's, it's, it is easier. Just to finish off, one final question. There's, there's an idea in this book that being more familiar with death in our day-to-day lives, surrounded, being sort of surrounded by death rather than rather than insulated from death, would would just make the world a better place. Would uh, a lot of the troubles of the world might come from the fact that we're not so really with death? Let's talk about what you mean by that and how how the world could be a better oh, it's place. Just the, the death accepting utopia that I'm, I'm slowly building. Um, yeah, well, there's so much of a denial that death is where our troubles come from. You know, religion and wars and politics and all of these things stem from knowledge of death. And if we really accept that, we can start looking to death as the ur-center point of, of everything. We can also start looking at ourselves as animals and part of an organic system that works in this world. And we're, we're destroying this world. We're destroying this environment. We're destroying each other. Mm-hmm. And it's all from a fear of death and a lack of acceptance of us as mortal, fleshy, prone-to-decay creatures. Um, and more of an acceptance of that, I think, would just make us all around better, more self-aware people. I've been talking to Caitlin Doty. We've been talking about her book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and other lessons from the crematorium. So, Caitlin, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.